0: good morning everybody it is uh, great to be back here with you again my name is greg jones as brandon mentioned i have uh, i live in jacksonville we go to grace community church in jacksonville uh with my family that we live um up there and i've recently uh, completed my seminary studies and over the past few years um, i have been linked to this church and i've enjoyed coming to visit you all over the years it's been a real uh, delight to get to know you all and For this opportunity to preach god's word so please um pray with me father i thank you for your word lord we thank you uh, for everything you've done please illuminate your word to us today please allow us to see your glory in your word we cannot do that on our own lord we need divine assistance and we ask that you please do that for us this morning in jesus name we pray amen the second verse of John Newton's famous hymn "Amazing Grace" uh, reads as follows: "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour the hour I first believed, the hour how fir- I first believed. How precious did that grace appear back then? What Newton is talking about there." is the grace that appears upon salvation. The moment a human soul soul realizes it's sin, realizes that it stands condemned before holy God, and then realizes that Christ's Christ's grace can apply to them. Oh, how precious is that grace. But there's a tendency in our hearts... For that grace to somehow, as we move along in the Christian life, to seem less precious. At the moment of salvation, we grasp it. It's irresistible. It's the greatest gift that any of us have ever been offered. It's free. It is given to us. That joy when we realized, Christ died for me. But that grace remains as precious, I submit to you this morning. And this morning we're going to be looking at that grace and I submit to you that that grace remains as precious and we need it just as much in our Christian lives as we did at that moment we were saved. So let's look at this amazing grace of God this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we are going to be focusing in on verses 11 and 12 this morning, but I'm going to read the whole chapter just for some context. Titus chapter 2, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, working at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible." In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so, oppo- so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority let no one regard you let no one disregard you you see in the middle of this ver- this section on instruction grace appears There is command after command. Indeed, the book of Titus is filled with commands. In some of your Bibles, this may be covered in two or three pages. Yet there are over 50 commands in the book of Titus. But in the middle of this section, grace appears. Grace appears. In this middle of this section about godliness and godly living, grace comes in. And this morning, I'm going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 with you. And we going to be looking at two truths about the relationship between grace and godliness. Verse 11, we're going to look at grace being the foundation of godliness. Then we're going to move to verse 12. Grace is the power behind godliness. Let's look at this grace of God that appears in verse um, 11. First of all, the, the text reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now there is a bounty of information that we can find out about the grace of God in these two texts. In this verse, there are five things that is told to us about the grace of God. Five things that, that uh, information that's given to us about this blessed attribute. The first thing gives us the reason why this verse is included here. The first word Uh, that gives us information about the grace of God is the word for, the word for. Now this, another way of saying this is because. This is the cause of how these people are to live out these commands. When there's a for, you know that it's related to something else and this gives us indeed the cause. You know, Paul could have left out verse 11. He could have just given us the list of instructions and told us the things to do, but he doesn't. He tells us the cause of how we live these instructions out. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Secondly, let's look at this phrase, the grace of God. Grace, first of all, is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It's getting something that we don't deserve. That's the meaning of grace. And But this, this grace we're told, is God's grace. You know, we often talk about grace, giving grace to one another, and that's good and right. As Christians, we've been forgiven of so much. We give grace to each other. But we're all sinful human beings. But this grace, this grace, my dear friends, is in a category of its own. This is God's grace. It's the possession, if you will, of God. Keep that in mind as we look at grace. This is God's Possession. Next, we find out that for the grace of God has appeared. So this grace that's the possession of God has appeared. Wh- what does that mean? What does it mean that it has appeared? Well, it doesn't mean that this is the first intervention of grace into human history. Grace has always been the way people have been saved. It's by grace. In the Old Testament, people were saved by grace through faith, as Brandon read this morning. By grace. That, that hasn't changed. So this isn't talking about the first intervention of grace into human history. But thinking about the Old Testament, they had different degrees of knowledge about this grace and this faith. You think of Adam and Eve, for example. They were there in the garden when God promised to crush the skull of the serpent, th- through the seed of the woman." They would have heard those words from God. They may not have understand who that seed is or what that looks like, but nevertheless it was going to be a grace of God to give that to them in the garden, but they didn't really know the workings out of that. Look for example at some of the elect Jews, what did they know about this? Well. We now look back at the Old Testament and we see that things like Isaiah 53, we're told that the suffering servant would cause, the Lord would cause our iniquity to fall on this suffering servant. So the picture is getting clearer. So there may have been elect Jews who had a better idea. It's difficult to think back about what people knew. We see it now clearly, but how much do they know? It's all there. So you've got Adam and Eve, you've got some of of the Jewish people who knew their word, knew how this would work work out. But then you think to yourself, what about people like the people who lived in Nineveh? Nineveh had a revival under the preaching of Jonah. And you ask yourself, how much did they know about the grace of God? Well, Jonah, as we know, was not a very faithful prophet. He tried to get away from his commission. Eventually, God, in the way that we all know, gets him to Nineveh. How much information did Jonah give to the people of Nineveh? Well, he says this in Jonah 3-4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah began to walk through the city one day's walk and he was saying that. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's it. The text doesn't give us any more information about that. I actually think he did say more stuff. But knowing Jonah and what we know about Jonah, I don't think it was a lot more. That's what he gave them. But get this. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. There's the faith that is sourced out of the grace of God. And there's their faith. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They had faith. I can say that with certainty. Because Christ tells the Pharisees, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. So they will be in glory and they will stand against the people of this generation. How much did they know? Not what we know now, but they knew enough. They knew that this comes, they knew they had a problem. They knew that they needed to repent and they did repent. They knew this comes from God, the only one who can forgive sin. And they believed in God. But Jesus says to the Pharisees that the people of Nineveh will will condemn them. Why is that? Well, this gives us the key to the meaning of the appearing. You see, this appearing is none other than the incarnation. The appearance of Christ into the world, in the flesh. That's this appearing. Listen to John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father. And get this, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The revelation of God's grace into the world through Christ. Full of grace and truth. And then John says later, a couple of verses later, For of His fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. So this appearance is Christ coming in the flesh, into the world. That's what's meant. And then we move on in the text. And one more point on that. That's what makes the rejection of the Pharisees and the scribes and that generation that Jesus talks about so egregious. You see the people of Nineveh with limited information. They believed. And then you have God himself. Full of grace and truth coming into the world. And they rejected Him. They rejected Him. This full revelation of God's grace. But let me, let me not stop there. That's what makes rejection of Christ today egregious. We have this full revelation of God. We have God the Holy Spirit dwelling among, in the world. And if we are, anyone rejecting Christ is in the same category as the Pharisees the scribes. And the men of Nineveh will rise up who believed and had faith and, and, and accepted the gift of God's grace. They'll be condemned also. So this grace is the cause of our obedience. It's the possession of God. And it's appeared in the world through Christ. Moving along in our text... It also then says that it brings salvation. Brings salvation. We read earlier Ephesians 2.8. I'm not going to stay here long, but I just want to get a couple of terms clear for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Let's look at these by grace and through faith. The by grace connotes again the source. This is this is the the. This is where grace comes from. We're not saved. Our, our, our faith, our, us being saved is not, is not sourced in our faith. That's the means. That's the way that it gets to us. We have faith. But the source of, our, of, of us being saved is the grace of God. By grace and the means there is through faith. That's the the means of grace. That's how it gets to us. But I I want to point out there again that this grace belongs to God. It's the source, it's the origin, it's the cause of our salvation. This is powerful stuff. This is so powerful, (laughs) it gives life to the dead, for you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This grace is powerful stuff. It's the possession of God, and it gives us nothing other than a spiritual resurrection life from the dead it can create life from dead people like we are all spiritually dead when we are born into adam this grace is powerful stuff so it brings salvation and then we're told it goes to all men in the nasb all people in the esv what's this about then is this says someone is this universalism Is this saying that everyone's going to be saved uh, in the end? Universalism is the idea that says everyone's saved uh, regardless of their life, regardless of repentance and faith. And you have to ignore a lot of the Bible to believe that. But somebody says, is this universalism here? What is meant by the word all men? Well, the answer is in the context, as it often is. You look back at that first section and you see now the grace of God has appeared in to all different categories of, of people. Look at what the, the, the four categories that are mentioned in the section beforehand. We have uh, older men. We have older women. Younger men. And slaves. And I'd say there's probably a fifth category there, not directly addressed, but younger women are to obey that command taught to them by the older women. So there we have five categories of people. All men is talking that now the grace of God is appearing to all sorts of people. It's not only appearing to Jews. It's Jew and Gentile. It's old and young. It's man and woman. It's slave and free. The grace of God is appearing to everyone. That's what Christ brought into the world, full of grace and truth. And now it's going to everyone. This grace of God a appeared to all men. As Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You're all one in Jesus Christ, talking about how we're saved there. It's going to everyone. So what do we learn then from verse 11 about grace? Well, we've learned that it forms the foundation of our, of our Christian life. It, it starts our Christian life, if you will. It's the cause of our obedience. It allows us to, it's going to allow people to live in obedience. It's God's possession. It's appeared. It saves. And it is to all people. So we learn that. These fundamental concepts of grace in verse 11. But God doesn't stop there. Let's see what verse 12 says in our text. By instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace doesn't stop there. It is the foundation, but it doesn't stop there. You see, God's grace is is the power behind godliness, the power behind our lives. And there is, I tell you, some fascinating information about grace in this text. Just let's look at it together. First of all, instructing us. Instructing us. Now the root of this word is the same word in, in Greek for child. Okay, It's the same word for, word for child. I want you to keep that in mind. It's used here for a, a teaching and instructing. But by implication in the word, knowing that it's uh, effectively a childing, we don't say that it's, a, it's an instructing, there's subordination in the word. Okay? There's, a, there's an assumption that a superior is going to be instructing an inferior. So we need to get that right here. Grace is going to be instructing us. We are under grace. The next thing I want you to notice about this word instructing is its tense of the word it is instructing it's present it's active this isn't it has been instructing or this isn't it has instructed in the past you've been instructed now go go do it it doesn't say that it says grace is instructing us okay grace is instructing us so you see <clears throat> grace is not a one and done You don't get your lifetime supply of grace when you are saved. It's not like, okay, thank you, Lord. I've got your grace now and now I'm off to it. I relied on you for that moment when I realized I was a sinner and I needed you and I accepted your gift. Thanks a lot. Now I'm off to the races. I'm going back to self-reliance. Oh, by the way, Christian, you weren't self-reliant in that moment you were saved. You were absolutely reliant on God. You brought nothing to the table. None of your works. Garbage. Kick them out. Well, that principle applies to the Christian life as well. It's not a one and done. God doesn't write you a grace check. You put it in your own bank and you draw on it as you need. There is a repository of grace for you. But remember, this is God's grace. God keeps this grace and he's going to dispense it to us throughout the Christian life. Don't be deceived in thinking that you're not reliant on God's grace. That's a lie. That's a lie. It was a lie thinking you didn't need God's grace to be saved. It is a lie to think that you don't need God's grace after you're saved. Personally, I'm thankful when we find out about what God's grace does. I'm thankful that Lord gives it to us. We're not responsible enough to handle this grace. We need to rely on the Lord for it. So next, it is instructing. Well, how then does it instruct us? How does it instruct us? I'd like to talk with you this morning about I'd like to talk to you this morning about the means of grace, the, the means of grace. I'd like to understand that with you this morning, so we know that we're reliant on it. but how then, does God dispense this grace to us in the Christian life? I have I want to start by telling you that the means of grace are the holy spirit and god's word the holy, the means of grace are the holy spirit and god's word i'm going to talk about different aspects of how that plays out in our lives shortly but i want to start there this is divine stuff this belongs to the holy spirit it belongs to god and he dispenses it to us these are the infallible means of grace the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And, I, and honestly, I can't talk about them individually. I have to talk about them together. I can't tell you that the Holy Spirit does this. Check. God's Word does this. These, th- these blessed uh, gifts are uh, 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 intertwined. The Holy Spirit, you see, takes God's Word and uses a, it in our lives. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is making Christ known to us. He does that on salvation but he continues to do that and the holy spirit uses god's word you cannot separate the holy spirit from the word which after all the holy spirit inspired So these are the infallible means of grace as i go through these means of grace i'm asking you some questions and i want you guys to ask yourselves questions mm. as well i have made clear the power of god's grace and how we need it to be saved we need it for our lives but how are we using These means of grace. So let's just start with the Holy Spirit and and God's Word. Are we walking by the Spirit? By walking, I mean, is it a lifestyle for us to walk in reliance, to live in reliance upon God's Holy Spirit? Are we in God's Word? Are we arming ourselves with God's Word so that the Holy Spirit can use it to give us grace that we need to live? Are we doing those things? Are we finding time to read God's Word? Are we revolving our lives around God's Word to study it and meditate upon it? We need to be doing that. And we need this grace. By the way, when we go through checklists and I've established to you that this is essential for the lives, but I want to make one more point to you. And that's this. This is the key to joy in life. God's grace is the key to a joyful life. An abundant life. This is what we need. This isn't something, this isn't a mechanical, yep, I've read me. We need this for true joy in the Spirit. So we need these means of grace and we need to be orienting our lives around them. So the means of grace, the Holy Spirit and God's Word, then you start there. Then it plays itself out to, to a bit more practical things. A means of grace is, is the, the preaching of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word. When we come for the preaching of God's Word, are we ready to hear it? Are we in, I'm thankful that you guys are, you are in churches which values the Word of God. I am preaching to you all. I know you value the Word of God, but it's so important throughout your lives, wherever we go, that we are making sure we're in churches that value the Word of God that is going to be preached to us with pastors who are faithfully Going to preach. Then so there's the preaching of the word. There's the teaching of the word also. Again, are you going to a church that is faithfully teaching the word? Are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you going to be taught? Because if you're not teachable, you're not going to get this means of grace. So you must be teachable. So the Holy Spirit and God's word, the means of grace, played out through preaching, teaching. It's also played out, sometimes in, an, in a fallible way, through the fellowship that we have with each other. Ephesians 4.29, listen to this. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Give grace to those who hear. We can give grace to each other. Elsewhere we find we can sing grace when we're singing to uh, one another in, uh, in church or elsewhere. Through our words we can give grace. Now, I told you at the beginning that you have the Holy Spirit in God's words, the infallible means of grace. Now we're into areas where sometimes we have to be careful. This isn't perfect. When we say to speak to one another things, it's not perfect sometimes. We have to be graceful about those things. Nevertheless, it is a means of grace. And when we are speaking to one another, let's try to give grace. Let's make sure that our words are grounded in the scriptures so that the Holy Spirit can use those words to impact change. So there's fellowship that we have with one another. There's the church. There's also um, the church as well. The church is a means of grace through all. The different activities of the church, the preaching, the teaching, the singing, the fellowship, all in, is, the, is the organization that does those things, by the way. There's, there's prayer. There's also prayer showing that reliance upon God, going to Him and asking Him. Always submitting to His will, but asking God through prayer. One more point under the, the activities of the means of grace through the church. One of the areas that's alluded to by this word instructing is there is a disciplinary aspect to this. There's a disciplinary aspect to it. Yeah, I told you there was subordination. There's, it, it, it assumes that there is a, inf, a superior instructing inferior, but there's also an aspect of discipline. And I don't want us to overlook that. You know, in the Greek world, I don't think there was a debate in Greek schools as to whether there should be physical discipline of children in schools or corporal punishment as it's called. In the Greek world I don't think that there were politicians wondering whether they should ban ban parents from exercising corporal punishment in the the home. Uh, So one author puts it like this to talk about the Greek world into which this word is used and how they would have understood it. One author says, Look at this: Education in the Greek world was so closely associated with whipping and beating the headstrong student that paiduane, which is our word, that instruct in properly designated corporal punishment just as well as what a moder- uh, as w- just as well as what a modern would call education. So that's their understanding, is there is a, a disciplinary aspect. Now, I'm not advocating here. Schools don't, don't read into my comments. That's clearly the Bible says we must discipline our, our, our children in love, always in control. But nevertheless, there is in this word a disciplining action um, that I want us to understand. Because that's grace as well. That's grace. When you're in a faithful church that exercises church discipline or I prefer to call it church restoration that's the goal if someone is sinning you want to restore them so that they can be sure they are saved and bring them back in that is a grace from the Lord and again we need to be in fellowship and in churches where that is done because that is a grace of the Lord we need to have relationships with one another where that can take place as well we always think of church discipline or, or restoration as somebody being brought up on a stage or a name being brought before a congregation. But most of it happens in the life of the church prior to that. And we need to be doing that. We need to be instructing and, and correcting one another. That's grace. That's the body of Christ. It's very different to what the world thinks. But nevertheless, that's a part of grace for us, being in churches that show that Discipline, And there is another aspect to discipline. There is another aspect to uh, discipline is that sometimes God uses circumstances in life to discipline us. He sometimes uses sickness or illness, even death. Just think in Corinth where they were uh, abusing the Lord's table. And the Lord says that for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Then he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So the Lord sometimes uses that discipline in lives as well. Now don't misunderstand me. We don't know oftentimes if that's the case. So we don't want to dwell there. Sickness and illness doesn't have to be Discipline from the Lord. It could be. And I want to show you that scripture does say that. He says, Some are weak, sick, and a number sleep, meaning a number have died. Look at Ananias and Zephira as well. God killed them. Now, of course, if they believed, they're in a far better place. They're with Christ. Uh, similarly for these believers in Corinth, which I suspect they were being disciplined and treated. They were. They would have been in a better place. Nevertheless, God sometimes uses that. This, but, but I don't want you to think it's always that. It could be the fact that there's a global pandemic. There's disease in a cursed world that is going around. This is a fallen world and things happen like that. Could be your fault. Could be bad lifestyle choice as well. So we don't want to be running to, to that and thinking we are being disciplined all the time. Nevertheless, that is a way That God gives us grace sometimes is through sickness and illness. It's for God's glory and he is in charge of that. Or what about Paul when he was given a thorn in the flesh? Paul was taken up to the third heaven. The prophets in the Old Testament were similarly taken up to this divine council. Paul was taken there and he saw things which he wasn't allowed to talk about. And in order to humble him, God gave Paul, what? A thorn in the flesh. Is that an illness or is that a person? The two main arguments. I'm not going to go into the the details. Um, If it's an illness, it's what I've just said there. That's a means of grace for Paul so that through his weakness, God's glory may be shown. Or if it's a person, that can also be. Difficult situations in your life can be a grace from the Lord. God's not going to abandon you in those situations. He's going to give you grace to get through those situations, to endure them. But it can also be that as well. That disciplining it could be a difficult situation, a horrible boss, a tough friend, someone who is perhaps bullying you in some way. Or whatever it looks like, God's grace is going to carry you through that. We, we, we need it. It could be financial loss. It could be a loss of a job. God is also giving us grace through the circumstances of life as well so those are the means of grace the holy spirit handling uh, with his word this god's grace giving it to us but he gives us ways and make sure we're opening our lives to those means of grace that he gives us because christian you need it and next we move to The purpose of this instructing, the purpose of uh, this instructing, Uh, just a quick point about the verb um, that you to live. Let me uh, read it to you first of all, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. That word to live um, doesn't mean you will live. We, We have a choice here. This isn't guaranteed, but we're called to live in this way. As we look at the rest of verse 12 here, I want to just um, define the terms, what is meant by ungodliness, worldly desires, put negatively, and then also sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And I will have to summarize here, but put negatively, ungodliness and worldly desires. They are the things that characterize the world. If you want, they are like the deeds of the flesh. Briefly, Galatians gives it to us. Immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. There's many more. That's ungodliness. That's the ungodliness that Paul is talking here. That's how he puts it negatively. He starts off by giving us, don't live like that, deny that. And then he goes into a positive list where he says, sensibly, righteously, and godly, they really summarize, they should characterize the Christian life in the world. Sensibly, orderly, this word is really important in this book. It appears um, in the instructions a number of times. Orderly, sensibly. Um, There should be a fundamental self-control, as the ESV says, a self-control about the Christian. He's not under the slavery of the flesh. He's not being driven from place to place, out of control by these passions and desires of the flesh. The Christian has the power to subdue those passions. So we should be self-controlled. The opposite is out of control, which is what the world will be doing. Out of control, um, moving along with the desires of their flesh. The next one, righteously. As is right. Upright keeping the commands of God. And finally, godly, um, which as I've said, is the opposite of the word a- above is of where it says ungodly, surprise, um, not in accord with the passions of the of the mob. So th- that's what we're talking about. He puts it negatively, not like that, not ungodly like the, like, like the world, following the passions of the flesh, but godly, self-controlled. But I'd like to look now at these words deny and live. These words, um, deny and live. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see, or you can listen. Paul says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Okay, so to deny and to live. Now, at first reading, at first glance there, it looks like these are equals, right? The Obviously, they, they imply different things. One is denying, one is living. But nevertheless, the force of the verb looked like they could be at the same time. Okay, do this and do that. Two two commands. Equal force. Okay, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. But that's not actually what's in the text. There is in the text evidence as to which of these is more important. And let me explain that to you. In the original Language, in the Greek, the main verb there, so, and again, remember, what are we doing here? We're trying to read this like the Greeks would have read it. This is inspired by God, but it wasn't inspired in English. It was inspired in Greek. So we are trying, as we read the Bible, to understand what would they have understood? What did the Spirit mean when he wrote these words down in this particular order? Remember, every word is inspired by God. These are the words of God. What did, what did the Holy Spirit mean? And how did they understand it? That's what we're trying to do here. And let me me try and help us with that. Their eyes would have gone to the to live. Okay, that's the main verb here. Everything else comes underneath. But their eyes would have gone to live. These living and denying are not equal. Okay? They would have gone to to, the to live part. The to deny part is what's called in in, in, uh, grammar terms, is called a participle. It's not the main focus. It's the highlight isn't on to live, it comes underneath the to live, okay? So I want I want to understand that, and the reason is is this is the Greek way of saying in the grammar that the main purpose here is the living, okay? These living and deny and they're not equals. The main purpose here is to living. However, somebody says, well, why is it first? Why does it say to deny first? What's going on there? This is the Greek way of saying, this is a prerequisite. Do you get that? This is a prerequisite. This isn't as important as the living, but you must do the denying first. This is a prerequisite. This is huge significance for us. Huge significance. Let's unpack this. What I mean by the main purpose is the living. You see, Christianity is not a denial of things. It's not just avoiding stuff. If you live the Christian life, if that's your understanding of the Christian life, you are wrong and you've got a miserable Christian life. Okay? The Christian life is joy. It's abundance. It's living for Christ. Peter calls it joy unspeakable. That's the Christian life. That's what Christianity is about and that's what the text is telling us. The Christian life is living. Okay? But it also here tells us that the prerequisite... To do that, there has to be some denying going on. There has to be some denying going on. You see, this fits perfectly with the context of the book. The book of Titus is a book packed with good works. But Paul is telling them to do all this stuff through the grace given to them because he wants their lives to be different to the false teachers that were preaching there. Listen to Titus 1.16, talking about the false teachers. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. By their deeds, they're denying Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. You can't do this living without this denying that must go on. You know, ask yourself, this is a college town. How many people are out there living for Christ while indulging their flesh? I tell you and I tell them they're disqualified. They're disqualified. They haven't fulfilled the prerequisite. And I'm not talking about perfection here, okay? Says somebody. Somebody objects. Oh, you're preaching legalism. No, I'm not. I'm not preaching perfection. But I am preaching to you. There must be an uncomfortability with our sin in our souls. There must be a holy war going on in each of us that fights our sin. That must be evident. And it's not evident by indulging the flesh. It's not evident by indulging the flesh so that's the prerequisite so how then does this denying work well you should know the answer to that by now it's by grace it's by grace that's how we do the denying of it by grace and again using the means of grace the spirit a great verse on on this denying on this slaying of sin is romans 8 13 if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you shall live right if by the spirit using the Spirit. You put to death. So you're engaged in this battle, okay? You put to death the deeds of the body. That's how it works. Now, this works differently from person to person. But there must be sin slaying going on in your life if you're a Christian. There must be sin slaying. Now, some people who've had years walking with Christ can look back and they may see sin in their life that was slayed immediately. How wonderful. Gone. Never to raise its head again, hopefully. If it does... It's not habitual like it used to be. It shouldn't be anyway. But there should be that sin slaying going on in the Christian life. But then says someone, well, what about those sins that persist a little bit into the Christian life? That take a bit longer to target? What's going on there? Let's think about that together, okay? What's going on in those persistent sins? Is there not enough grace to go around? May it never be. God's grace is infinite and abundant. It's not that. Is it because that particular sin is too powerful for the Holy Spirit? God himself, the power of God, can slay any sin. It's greater than any power in the universe. It's not that. So what does that leave? It leaves you. It leaves you and it leaves me. There's the problem with those persistent sins. And this might be a hard truth for us to swallow here. But when there is that persistent sin, you must love that sin... More than you love Christ. No, I don't, says someone. I love Christ more than anything. I, I do this. But there must be something that you love about that sin more than you love Christ if it's not being slayed and you're not making progress in sanctification. That's hard to understand. But remember when we think but that's that's a conclusion. Because it's not the grace of God, that's abundant. It's not the Holy Spirit. There must be something in us. And remember, when we think that we don't, no, I love Christ more. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. It deceives us into thinking we don't need saving grace. And it deceives us in our lives as well to thinking we don't need grace to start. But I'm telling you, there must be something in that sin that you love more than Christ if it's not being slayed and fought against and you're not winning. Use the Spirit, slay it, ask God for His help. Ask God for His grace. You see, you can't do this without grace. You can't do this um, without grace. You could create a program for yourself. Uh, You could have a stepped program. You can try and legislate in your own life to defeat sin. It'll be bankrupt. It'll be hopeless. I'm not saying don't use your common sense and your wisdom to do things that help, but I'm just saying if you're relying on that to slice in, it's not going to help. You know, I'm reminded of of a time, a curious period in in British history. Um, Britain is known for having a royal family, and people know the Queen, they know the royal members of the family. Yet there was a time in British history where we didn't have a king. We actually got rid of the king in in around 1640. Um, the king had uh, was it was largely a Protestant country at that time. King had Catholic sympathies and was fighting against Parliament, and eventually they beheaded Charles I. And then between uh, around 1640 to 1660 in Britain, the Puritans came to the ascendancy and you had this uh, godly group of men, our spiritual forefathers, and they were actually running Britain during that period. And we are thankful to those blessed people for their faith and what they give to us. But one area I think they got wrong is that the link between the church and the state They joined them together. They didn't really see them as separate. And as a result, they tried to legislate Christianity. And always wondered, how come we ended up with a king? Oh, we got rid of the king. How come we ended up with a king 20 years later? Well, they tried to legislate Christianity. and It doesn't work. You can't legislate Christianity. Christianity is by grace, through faith. It's individual. It's not collective. And they did things like ban Christmas. Christmas, they saw it was a... Time of revelry and a big drinking party. And in 1640, they, 1644, they banned Christmas for that reason. They banned games on the Sabbath. They tried to legislate Christianity. In the end, people said, nope, not having it. They weren't saved. They didn't have it. You see, the point I'm making to you by telling you all this is they tried to legislate Christianity. You can't do it. You can't do it without grace. You will try and you will fail. These things have been tried. No, it must be done by grace. Grace. It must be done by grace. Finally, I just want to give some concluding thoughts here on, on grace that have comforted my soul as I've studied for this. The first is, isn't it comforting to know that whatever happens tomorrow, for the believer, the someone who has received grace, who has repented and believed, for the believer, that grace is going to be there for them. That grace is going to be there. Whatever comes ahead, maybe it's something you're not looking forward to, something you're dreading, something that's coming up. Don't fear. God doesn't give us the grace, one and done. God's grace is going to be there for you, Christian. Use it, rely on it. We have no reason to be fear. The second thought is, aren't we glad that God is not miserly with his grace? God Wants to share his grace with us. It is infinite supply. He wants to give it us, give it to us. Ephesians 2, 6 says, and raised us up with him and seated him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show what? The surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God wants to give us his grace. God is a generous God. This grace is in a category of its own. It's unique to our God, the true God, this loving kindness towards sinners. It is blessed, we need it, we must use it. I started with the verse from John Newton on amazing grace, about that saving grace. But the next verse actually talks about what we've been talking about, that grace which persists in the Christian life, that empowers the Christian life. Listen to these words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Let's rejoice in that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this grace this gift from you to save us this free gift to save us but not that only lord to sustain us to carry us through the christian life lord forgive us when we don't rely on your grace forgive us that this grace somehow may have become less precious in our hearts lord remind us through your word that we need this it is joyful it is the key to our lives that are pleasing to you father Please uh, put Your Word into our hearts so that we can understand this grace better, Lord. Rely on it and use it. And Lord, we look forward to that day where grace will lead us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.